Father, we thank you for that message. We thank you, Father, for calling us and inspiring us as fathers. And now we turn to our Father who is in heaven. And Lord, as we look at the, the world as it is around us and we see, Lord, the changing way the, church, the world sees the church and we realize that you have put us here at, at, for such a time as this, we look to you right now, Father, for the strength, the grace, and the wisdom to not just survive, but to come through this time and fulfill what we are here and called to do. And for the grace to do that, we thank you. And now as we look to your word, Father, we ask the precious Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding that we would truly see the hope of your calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus. Amen, amen. and amen. amen. It doesn't take a lot of spiritual sensitivity or uh, awareness to realize that we are living in very difficult times. The times that I grew up in when I was in school, uh, the kinds of things that kids got in trouble with was for chewing or talking in class. Uh, when I graduated from college, the biggest scandal on the campus was that somebody in one of the fraternity houses, there was a rumor that they had been smoking marijuana. That was shocking to the campus, how our times have changed. I grew up in a world, and most of us did, where um, where the standard that our country had and that our nation had, whether it was run by believers or... Uh, but basically we had adopted as a nation uh, the standards, the Judeo-Christian standards, the standards of the Bible, of the Ten Commandments. And as the Apostle talked about earlier, back when he grew up, which was only a few years behind when I grew up, um, if somebody impregnated a girl the, the expectation was that you would marry her even if she was fat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and now we live in a culture that's very different. And that culture has invaded our church. So that in the younger generations, the idea of, of having to get married is kind of way in the back burner. Well, why do we have to do that? And I want to talk to you about going through this kind of time because I'm concerned because I believe that very often the kind of the goal that, 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 that we have as Christian men is to, is to survive through these kind of times. How are we going to make it through a world that's very quickly turning against us and it's, going to, it's becoming and it may well become what's happened in other nations before where Christianity is not just not the dominant religion, but it is now persecuted, openly and publicly persecuted. We still live in a time when under our Constitution it's recognized that we have the right to worship openly and publicly. But that time may end. Are we prepared for that? Are we preparing for that? As the Apostle was sharing, I was meditating a little bit on what I want to share with you this morning and realizing that as a pastor, I'm a father to the men that God has entrusted to me, the people that God has entrusted to me. And part of the role of a father is to train and prepare his children for what is to come. So that not only that we survive what is to come, but I believe with all my heart God has called each of us at this particular time for the purpose of such a time as this. Which means we have a, there, God has a purpose for our, our existence. He has a purpose for our walk with him. He has a purpose for our lives, not just to make it through and to get to heaven, but to do something for the kingdom of God in and because of these difficult times. Yes, amen. We just came through a time in our church last week of several days of fasting and prayer. And as we did, I felt the Lord put a particular story on my heart and had me go through it over and over during that time. And I want to talk to you a little bit about it because in the process of looking at the story, I began to see this is where we either are headed or we are now or we are, we are headed and in this story, I believe, is, the, is the, one of the key elements of what we need to do in our lives as men in order to be certain that not only that we survive, but that we accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. It's a story of four young men. They were growing up in a nation where they were among the elite. They were educated, they were young and full of life, and they were 
uh, uh, full of, uh, of, of, of uh, you know, they were just stood head and shoulders above everybody else. But they lived at a time when their nation was very quickly going downhill spiritually. They were, very, they were outwardly talking about the things of God, but inwardly they were, their heart was in a very different direction. And it came a point where God put them into the hands of another king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who came in and took, began to take in several waves people out of the nation of Israel back over into Babylon, which is where Iraq is today. And the first group that he took were these elite men. And among this elite men, there were four men. Daniel was one of them. And they were given, Hebrew, given Chaldean names. And the names of the other three we now know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I want to read out of Dan Daniel chapter 1. And then I want to go through two trials that they went through. I want to show us how they, according to God's word, how they succeeded and why that's so important for us. So let's look in Daniel chapter 1. Because in here, I believe, is, is the key. In the third year of the reign of Joachim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Joachim, into the, uh, the king of Judah, into the hands, with his, into his hand, and into the, some of the artifacts of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, to the house of his God, so he took the things of God out of the temple of God, out of the tabernacle of God, temple of God, and took them into the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. And the king instructed Asphenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles and the young men in whom there was no blemish, but they were good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand. They were the elite who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily portion of the king's delicacies, of the wine which he drank for three years tra for training them, so that at the end of the time they may serve before the king. Among these were the sons of Judah named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave new names. To Daniel he gave the name Balthashazar, which means the one who protects the king. To Hananiah, he gave the name Shadrach. To Meshach, he gave the name Meshach. And Azariah, he gave the name Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacy, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And now God brought Daniel into favor and the goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, the king, who has appointed your food. And your drink, for why should I see your faces? The, the chief of the, link, of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear the Lord our king who has appointed the food for you to eat and drink. Why should he see your faces look worse than the other young men of your age? Then you will endanger my head before the king. And Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, let's put this to a test, your servants, for ten days and give us just vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let you examine our appearance before you and the appearance of the young men who eat just the portion of the king's delicacies and as you see fit and deal with your servants. And so the eunuch consented with them and these masters and test matters and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. And the steward took away the portion of the delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as for these four young men, God gave, God gave them knowledge, skill, and all literature, wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the days, the king said... That when, that when they should be brought before, the chief of the eunuchs brought before Nebuchadnezzar, the king interviewed them and found among all of them there was none found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king in all the matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers in his realm. And Daniel continued in the first, until the first year of King Cyrus. So they go through this test. They come out of this test. And God has advanced them in wisdom and understanding and now in favor before king. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful ruler on the earth at that time. He was an absolute despot, absolute ruler. His word was law, and if you did not obey it, you instantly died. So these men were not just doing this as some casual academic exercise. If this didn't work right, their lives were literally at stake, and the 
chief of the eunuchs who was responsible for them, if this didn't work right, his life was at stake. And after this, Daniel and these three other Hebrew children are put in positions of authority. But as you go over to chapter 3, and let's turn over there quickly, a test comes. Nebuchadnezzar decides that he wants to erect a statue of himself. And it was 60 cubits high, and its width was 6 cubits, and it's set up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather the satraps, the the administrators, the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the judges, and the magistrates, and all the officials. And he orders them that when, the, when they hear the sound, when they hear the sound of the instruments, that they are to bow down and to worship this idol that's been made of him. And so when this is constructed, and they begin to worship, and they hear that sound, they, they come from all around to fall down and to burn. And he orders that anybody does not fall down and burn, that's, fall down, Uh, in worship, this is in verse 6, that they shall be cast immediately into the burning, fiery furnace. So at that time when all the people, verse 7, heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the symphony, and all the music, all the nations and peoples and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But at that time there were certain Chaldeans came forward and they accused the Jews because under under the Ten Commandments they cannot worship any other god but the Lord their God. They cannot bow before another god and worship another god. And here King Nebuchadnezzar is ordered that if you do not bow and worship this god that I have made, you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so some of the more other rulers, other authorities that were jealous of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come and tell the king. And they say in verse 10, King, you've made a decree that anyone who who hears the sound and the music and doesn't bow down to the golden image, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. There are certain Jews, verse 12, who have you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon? There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They don't serve your God or worship the golden image which you've set up. And Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and a fury, commanded them to bring these three men, and he brought them before the king. In verse 14, he spoke to them, saying, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image which I've set up for you? And now he's going to give them a second chance. He said, All right, if you're now ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the psaltery, the symphony, to bow down and worship, then you shall not be cast into the fiery furnace. But if you do, then you will be, you do not, then you will be cast. And who can deliver you from my hands? Verse 16. This is their answer. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king of, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, if we're threatened to be thrown into the fiery furnace, Our God is able to deliver us from the burning furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will still not serve your gods, and we will still not worship your golden image, which you've set up. King Nebuchadnezzar was now full of fury, and the expression of anger changed his face towards them. And he commanded them that they heat the furnace up seven times hotter. And he bangs them up in their clothes and their turbans, and he throws them in the fiery furnace. And because of the king's command, verse 22, the furnace was excitingly hot, exceedingly hot, and the flame of the fire kindled around those men who took up, killed those men who threw them in the fiery furnace. And they were thrown down into the fiery furnace. Verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar arose astonished, and he rose in haste, and he spoke to his counselor. He said, didn't we not throw three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered him, said, true, O king. And he said, look, behold, I see four men loose walking around in the midst of the fire. And and they're free. They're walking around and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the furnace. And he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out of here. And they came out from the midst of the furnace. And when the satraps, the administrators, the governors, and the king's counselor gathered together, They saw that these men on whose body the fire had no power, that the hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not even on them. I remember the first time we had a water fire down here in Providence. My wife and I went down to see that, and we sat by the edge of the water fire, and this beautiful experience, and the wind changed direction. It began to blow the smoke towards us. I still can't wear the sweater I wore that night because the smell of smoke got in that sweater so badly I couldn't even wash it out. Wow. 
And these men were in the midst of the fire, and even the smell of smoke did not get on their clothes. And Nebuchadnezzar said, verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and, they yield, and yielded their bodies that they should not serve or worship any other god except for their own god. Therefore I make a decree that if anybody speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they shall be cut into pieces, and their houses shall be made an ashen sheep. These men stood up and refused to bow before another god that their king was ordering them to bow before. And as a result, not only were they preserved, not only did the angel of the Lord show up to protect them, but as a result of their, of their faithfulness to stand up for what God had called them to do. Not only were they delivered, but the image of God in the eyes of the pagan king was changed. And God's name was exalted in a nation that was an idolatrous nation. Let's go over to chapter 6, because now that kingdom has fallen, and another kingdom has arisen. This is a combination of the Medes and the Persians. And we're going to look at the fourth Hebrew children, Daniel now. And it says in chapter 6, It pleased Darius, who is now the king, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, the satraps might give an account of them so that the king would suffer no loss. And Daniel distinguished himself among the governors and the satraps because of an excellent spirit that was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. That's the favor he had. And so the governors and the satraps sought to find charge against Daniel. They were jealous of him concerning the kingdom, but they could find no fault, no charge or fault, because he was faithful. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that's our testimony? Our enemies could find no fault. They're jealous. They want to tear us down because of our God, but they can find no fault. Because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. So these men said, all right, We shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So the governors, the satraps, thronged before the king, and they said to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, the advisors, they've consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 33 days, 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions." So now, O king, establish the decree and sign it in writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, that it will not be altered. And so King Darius signed the written decree. Now look at this in verse 10. And when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. As was his custom since early days. As was his custom since the habits you build into your life when things are good are the things that you will fall back on when the pressure's on. That you'll fall back on when the pressure's on. And then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. And they said, didn't you sign a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered and said, the thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, and it cannot be altered. So they answered and said to the king that Daniel, who was one of the captives of Judah, he does does not show due regard for you, O king, for the, or the decree that you have signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard this word, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun, trying to find some way to get out from under the decree that he had signed. And these men approached the king and said to him, King, know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed, even by him. So the king gave command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of the lions. But the king spoke to Daniel and said, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. 
And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it up with his own signet ring, with the signet of the Lord's. And, and the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. And look what happens. The king went into the palace and spent the night fasting. And no musicians were brought to him, and his sleep went from him. He was awake all night fasting and praying for Daniel. Daniel's asleep in the lion's den, and the king is fasting and praying for him. And the king rose very early, verse 19, in the morning, and went in haste to the den of the lions. When he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel and said, and the king spoke, saying, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you've served continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel. That's the second time. And shut the mouth of the lions so that they might not hurt me. Why? Because I was found innocent before him. And also, king, I have done no wrong before you. And the king was exceedingly glad for him. And the king commanded that they should take Daniel out of the den. And so Daniel was taken out of the den. No injury is found on him because he believed his God. And the king gave command and they brought those men that accused Daniel and they threw them in the lion's den. Them and their children and their wives and the lions overpowered them, broke all their bones to pieces and they came to the bottom. And King Darius wrote, it, wrote to all the peoples and nations that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree in every dominion and my kingdom must, not, must tremble in fear before the Lord God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he is steadfast forever. Amen. Notice the similarity between these two. There was a challenge that came to men of God because they stood up and honored their God first. When they stood up and honored their God and were willing to take whatever the consequences were, God was not only able to preserve them, but as a result, God was honored in the midst of a pagan, ungodly nation. This is what the Lord had me turn to during the fast. And I began to realize that the nation that we're living in is very slowly but very surely changing into more and more of a pagan and ungodly nation. Amen. And the people of God are slowly but surely going to be required to bow to bow and worship standards, bow and worship gods that this world now worships, that according to the scriptures, we cannot worship. And we are going to be faced, and it's coming soon, I believe, we're going to be faced with very difficult choices to make. The apostle mentioned earlier out of Romans 1.16 where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for the power of God under salvation. And so often we say, God, I'll go anywhere. I'll go wherever you do, whatever you want to do. And all God wants us to do is go across the street and share the gospel with somebody that we know and we're afraid to go do it because they may reject us or they may not accept us. How are we going to stand if we're afraid to even share the gospel willingly with people that their only risk is they may look funny at us and they may break relationship with us. How are we going to stand if the government requires us to shut our churches down? If Congress passes a law and says you no longer get a tax deduction for tithing. If we're prohibited from speaking the name of Jesus, what are we going to do? Say, well, that can't happen. It's already happened in good parts of the world. History shows us it's happened over and over again to nations that didn't start out that way. How are we going to stand? How am I as a pastor, as a father of men, a father of people, how are you as a father going to lead your family through a time like this? Well, we must begin now and prepare. Yes, sir. And I believe part of the key, and this is what God began to deal with me about, is the preparation that Daniel, Shadrach, and, me, and Meshach, and Abednego went through in chapter 1. So let's go back and look at that again. When they were brought over, the king wanted to prepare them. He wanted to prepare them so that they could come and serve the king. And whether we realize it or not, our society, our school systems, our, our entertainment world, Everything that the world has control of that is coming to us is indoctrinating us to prepare us 
to serve an ungodly king. And I'm not talking about a political leader. I'm talking about the spirits that are behind ungodly nations. We're being weakened and prepared and indoctrinated. And notice the food that was brought to them was food that in the world's understanding was to make you wiser, to make you stronger, to make you more handsome. That was the theory under which the king ordered that these servants be, be fed and be groomed and they were being fed that food and given that drink to strengthen them, to make them look acceptable in the standards of the king so that they could serve the king. The challenge that the four Hebrew children had was that their God had already ordained certain food that was not acceptable to eat and certain food that was acceptable to eat. Now some of the reason behind that delineation in food had to do with nutritional reasons. I'm certain it did. But I believe there was a more important spiritual reason behind that than just whether, you know, Shrimp is safe to eat or not. God was identifying them as belonging to him and as consecrated to him by the everyday activities of their life, including God saying, I, as your God, have the right to tell you what you can eat and can't eat. And so when talks about defiling themselves by eating food that God had prohibited them from eating, it was not just whether this wine was okay to drink, or the, the, the chicken that the king was having them eat was okay to eat. It was who was ordaining them to eat that or not eat it. It was who was the authority that they had submitted themselves to. Now keep in mind, they've got the greatest of all possible excuses for saying, look, it's got to be okay to eat this because I'm submitting to the king. I'm here under the king. I'm, you know, I'm going to die if I don't eat this. And yet nowhere do I find in the Ten Commandments, nowhere do I find in God's law an exception if it's difficult. An exception if it's hard. Because that's the place where God, the consecration to who God is in our life, that's the place where it comes into focus, who God really is in your life. So they've got to make a choice. And Daniel, with all respect to the position that this eunuch was in, Because the eunuch says, don't put me in this position because if I give you the wrong food and you don't come out on the other end, my life's at stake. And Daniel says, I'm sympathetic with that, but there's more at stake here. And so as we saw in the story, they said, just test it. Give us a chance. And because they refused to compromise and to come under the lordship of Nebuchadnezzar, because they refused to compromise and they they kept their lifestyle consistent with what God had ordained. They kept themselves under God's authority. See, when you get out on your own, you get out from underneath God's authority. You're out from underneath His grace and His protection and the flow of His anointing. And when they stayed under that and said, you know, even if this means we die, we're not going to compromise. And because of that, not only was God able to save them but they, through their consecration, the name of God was exalted in both of those nations. I want to talk to us this morning about our diet. We've just had a nice breakfast, and so we've had another message, so we've had a chance for it to calm down a little bit. And the diet that they were talking about was the physical food that they were eating. And God had commanded them under the old law, there are certain things you can eat and there are certain things you can't eat. Under the new covenant, although there may be health reasons for that, we don't live under that law. But there's a food that we do eat. And there's a food that God does say we can't eat that has a far more important spiritual impact on our lives than whether it's Brussels sprouts or hash brown potatoes, or whatever the natural food it is. And that is the food that we put in our soul and the food that we put in our spirit. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning because that's what God's been dealing with me about. What are you feeding your soul on? 
What are you feeding into your spirit? We live in a world now that is inundated 24 hours a day with mass media. I mean, some of you, I've got on, with me in my briefcase today two different sources of mass media, and my TV's at home and my computer's at home. I've got a phone and I've got an iPad. And people can communicate with me. I can, it's amazing. You sit in a, in a meal with somebody, and you're with, you know, we in our family sometimes. You say, you know, I wonder what about this. And three people pull out their phone and immediately on the Internet, and they got an instant answer. And if we don't get an instant answer, I'm getting rid of that app. I'm going to get a new app that can find it faster. Now, when I, I want to understand. I'm not preaching law here in the sense of, you know, Throw your TV out, throw your computer out. I'm not talking about I can't watch TV, I can't, that's not what I'm talking about. But we need to be aware and sensitive of what we're feeding into us and what's behind that. And is that strengthening me and enable me to stand in that day when I may have to choose between bowing or burning? What am I feeding into my soul and into my family? Is that strengthening me? For that day. If that day never comes, praise God. But if it comes, I need to be ready, my family needs to be ready, and those that God has put under my responsibility need to be ready. And there's a direct connection between what these young men were willing to eat and not eat all their lives, but especially in this test, and what in the success that they had to be able to stand and not bow their knee. So I want to look for a little while at what is the food that our mass media is offering to us. I, I, I enjoy old movies. I don't watch this junk that's on TV. But I enjoy watching an old movie from time to time. And I, I, I discovered that I've got an, an app on my phone that I can take the movie that's playing on my c- cable at home and I'm on vacation somewhere and I can watch that same movie on my phone or on my iPad even a movie that was played a week ago. That's incredible. But what is that feeding into our lives? What is that feeding into our soul? Sometime earlier, that was last year, on, I was listening to, to Ravi Zacharias, who plays on our radio station, and most of you are familiar with him. And he had a week where he was talking about one of his heroes and the heroes that helped him grow up, a man named Malcolm Mugridge, who some of you may be familiar with, may not be, and I, I don't want to go off with him. But he talked about what Muggeridge's view of the mass media was. Now, Muggeridge had been a, a journalist. He'd been a spy. He was the leading, probably the leading jur- English journalist of his day. Very profound man and wrote very profound things. And he talked about an interview with him and his view of the mass media. And he said, I'm part of the mass media, but I'm very concerned about it because it's changed. It's changed. And it made me thinking about Watching old movies, you know, and you kind of get sucked into, uh, you know, when, when our, my wife grew up and even my parents, well, my parents, not my parents, my wife grew up and women get, you know, into soap operas and now we've got soap operas that men get into, so like Downton Abbey and things like that. All this stuff out there, just soap operas. And as I'm watching programs, I'm thinking about what's really going on here and I realize they manipulate the plot to draw our emotions in. In fact, I've got a book because our two youngest sons are involved in media, in producing and directing and writing videos, and they've got a book that they had, so I got it. And there's a formula for how you construct a plot to draw people in emotionally because it's the emotion that makes them want to come back. I remember watching a movie years ago, and it was so intense. I walked out of there, and I couldn't figure out what day it was for a few minutes. I got that into it. And... And then what I've begun to realize is since I've been listening to this quote I'm going to give you in a minute from Malcolm Muggeridge, begin to listen to that. What is it that I'm watching? And then I begin to realize it's unreal. We look at these actors and actresses. That's not who they are. You read about their life. I mean, Mickey Rooney just died this last year. You know, this child prodigy. And then I discovered he had eight marriages. Eight failures in relationship. Eight divorces. Why should I look up to somebody that can't succeed eight times in a relationship? But we lift up these stars, and it's not just movies, it's sports. 
you understand what sports, and I'm, I love sports, but you understand, but not like I used to. Understand what sports are. Sports is an artificial contest. It's kind of like in the Roman Empire, they had gladiators. And we even have that now. They had gladiators, which because they were so bored, they had to come up with, real con with pretend conflicts where you had spectators who were not at risk, not threatened, didn't have to train, but they could live vicariously off of this contest of these two gladiators fighting each other and we've brought that into our realm because we have baseball teams and football teams and soccer teams and there's nothing wrong with it as long as we understand that's not real. We're paying them to do what we can't do. So we can sit back on our couch on Sunday afternoon, eat potato chips and whatever it is we eat, while men that have trained and disciplined their bodies, we watch them in contact with each other, and then we get so emotionally involved in it, we wear t-shirts with their names and numbers on it. We see fans in there that are, that are, that are crazy. They're buying you know, all these gear and identifying with people they never meet. They don't even know who they are. And then they get traded from one team to another, and we get mad at them. Because they let us down. Well, wait a minute. That means I'm too emotionally involved. They become my team. And we can quote statistics. And we can say who's playing for this person. Or we can say who's in this movie and in that movie. Can we quote scripture that well? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So one of the dangers of feeding our lives and feeding our souls so much of the time on the food that the world is offering to us is we become fat and lazy. We let them tell us what it means. We learn to live life vicariously, which means you're living your life through somebody else's life, which means we stop living, knowing how to live our own life. But I believe there's a greater danger. The quote that Malcolm Muggeridge gave was actually not his quote, but it's one he's so famous for. It's a quote that actually comes from a, song, a, song, a, a, a poem of William Blake's called The Song of Innocence. And this is it. I'll kind of go through it with you. Life's dim, dim windows of the soul. This life's dim windows of the soul distort the heavens from pole to pole, and lead you to a believe a lie when you see with and not through the eye. Life becomes distorted when you see with, not through the eye. Here's what that means. The purpose of your eye is to take what's on the outside of your body and bring the truth of that into the retina on the back of your eyeball and the nervous system conveys that to your brain and it creates the image that you see of me in your brain. So the purpose of your eye is to simply take in what's in front of it and pass that information on in to your mind to begin to figure out what it means. That's seeing through the eye. But the danger he talks about when things become distorted is when we start seeing with the eye and not through the eye, which means the eye becomes the instrument that not only sees it, but tells us what it means. An example of that and how this is so easy. Years ago, when our oldest son, who's now in another month turns like 43, um, when he was, I don't know, probably 15 years old, 10 years old, I took him to a Red Sox game. And uh, it was early in the season, and we went to the game, and, and we're, uh, we're sitting there, and um, it was about the time, this was back when the Celtics and the Lakers were having this big rivalry with, with uh, uh, Magic Johnson and, and Larry Bird, and, uh, and they were in the finals. And so I'm watching this game with my son, and all around us are men with portable TV sets at a baseball game. 
And I, I can understand it because they're watching the finals. They're watching this game, you know, and they're really into this and they're watching this while there's a live game going on out there. And then when the game's over, I figured they'd turn the sets off and put them away, but they're still watching what comes on next. And those kind of things bother me. Why? You paid all kinds of money, not much much as you pay now, but you pay all this money to go to a game. Living color, 3D, it's, it's, it's right alive in front of you, and you're watching this little screen. And I began to realize why. Because this is easier. It's easier to watch a TV scheme because somebody else is telling you what's important to look at. Somebody's telling you what it means. And all you have to do is sit there passively and take it in. Whereas to watch a live ball game, you've got to choose what's important to look at. You have to exercise discipline, especially unless you're sitting right behind home plate, because we were out in left field. You've got to play discipline to look down there and focus down there. And because there's so many things that can distract you, you have to figure out what it means. You have to become actively involved in choosing what's important and what's not important. And it got me thinking. Because what our mass media does is it not only shows us things, but it tells us what it means. It's the food that the king of this world is choosing to feed the people of this world to train them to serve him. And that same food is being offered to us as Christian men. And the enticing thing about it is it looks better. It seems to taste better. And everybody around us is doing it. And we've been trained and taught that this is what you need to do to be normal, happy, and successful. To have a happy family, you've got to have a TV. I'm not against TV. The problem is when we don't know use it for the right purposes. And then we submit ourselves under the training that the world is being trained with by the God of this world to prepare, I believe, for his coming. And that's the choice that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to decide. Is what food are we going to eat, put into our body? And because they chose to only eat the food that God had commanded them to eat. They consecrated themselves under his authority. Well, what has God told us to eat? Let's go to Joshua chapter 1. You know this verse. Joshua was a man that was facing a tremendous crisis in a way in his life. He had always been the second man to Abraham, uh, to uh, Moses. He had always been a second man to Moses, and he had, I assume, expected that Moses was going to lead them into the promised land, and he was going to continue along as a second in command. And God tells Moses one day, you're not taking them in. We're not going to get into why. And Moses dies. And now Joshua is responsible for bringing this unruly people into the promised land. And God says to him, in the beginning, Moses is dead. Verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go into this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place of the soul your foot shall tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness of Lebanon as far as the great river. He goes down through the boundaries. Verse 6, be strong and of good courage. For to this people... You shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and of good courage. That's what we're talking about today. That you may observe to do according to all of the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. So how is he being told that he would be able to carry out what he was told to do? Only do not turn from the right or the left that you may prosper in what you go, what you, where you go. And this is how. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Notice what he does not say. He does not say you shall read it every day. 
So many Christians make this mistake. They think if I read my Bible every day, that's enough. You should read your Bible every day. You should read a proverb every day. You should study your Bible every day. But that's not what feeds you. That's what informs you. When you went through the line this morning and you picked up that plate and you came down, you didn't just look at that food, did you? You didn't just smell that food, did you? You didn't just move it around with your fork, did you? You didn't just put it in your mouth and say, oh, those potatoes are so good, and then just spit it out again, did you? When we read our Bible, we're looking at what God says. We study our Bible, we're poking around at it. We're even putting it in our mouth. But in order for that food to strengthen you, you had to do something else, didn't you? You had to swallow that food. That food in your mouth wasn't going to strengthen you. That food in your nose wasn't going to strengthen you. That food looking at your plate wasn't going to strengthen you. You had to get it on your plate. You had to look at it. You had to know where the eggs were. You had to know where the potatoes were. You had to know where the, where the, the, the sausage were. You had to know where they were. You had to know what they were. You had to know something about them in order to decide what to eat. But knowing what they were, knowing where they were, didn't strengthen your body. It was only as you ate it. And for the word, that's what meditating on it does. Meditating on it is when you roll it around in your mind, when you think about it, when you begin to speak to yourself about it, you begin to speak to somebody else about it, when you begin to think how you're going to apply it in your life. As I teach a course on renewing the mind, I tell everybody, you're a master at meditating. Because if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. Because worry is meditating on the lies of the enemy. So you just take the principles that you use to worry and bring them over to the Word of God. And I'm not going to go through them all right now. But it's the med- if you meditate on the law, on the Word of God, day and night. Stop and think in your life about how much time you spend allowing this world to speak to you. Television, radio, internet, your phone, your, whatever device you have. Billboards, how much access this world system has into your mind and into your heart and how much God has. It was last year at one of the meetings at Faith Christian Center. Apostle Scales made some comment about our kids our Christian kids that have grown up in church, and how quickly they can quote words of songs off their lips, and how if you pressured them, they couldn't quote one scripture. It's an indication of what's being put into them, but how much of us as men can do so much better? Under pressure, what comes out of my mouth? It was a while ago, somebody mentioned something and said, you know what, I remember a movie about that. This person was in that movie, this person was in the movie, and this is the year it was made. How come I know that so well? And it made me check. What have you been thinking about? What have you been devoting your casual time to? It's not, again, that we should never do those things, but be aware and conscious of what you're putting into you, and is that what I want to strengthen my soul with? and my, my mind with. Is that the food that God has ordained for me to eat? Now here's the, here's the, here's the, the, the trap. Because the thought is, well, if I just spend my time reading the Word of God and meditating the Word of God, I, you know, I'm going to be different or I'm going to be weird. And you know, I need to be able to take all these things in to be relevant. Didn't Paul say, I'm all things to all men that I may by some means reach? Yeah, but Paul didn't do those things to come down to their level. He did those so that he could bring them to his level. When people say that to me, my answer is, well, are you influencing them more than they're influencing you? So we use that so often as an excuse to feed our flesh. Well, I need us to relax. I need it. And I'm preaching to me right now as much as you. I need this to relax. I need this to do... And the lie, that's just exactly what the food was like that they brought to the Hebrew children. It looked better to eat. 
everybody else was eating it. And if I don't eat this, I'm going to be different than everybody else. But notice at the end of the time, they were stronger, they were wiser, and where the king said, I want you to eat this food so that you have wisdom to serve me, when they consecrated themselves to eat only what God said, God gave them his wisdom. That doesn't come from the food you eat, it comes from him. So the question we need to ask ourselves, what's our diet on? What am I feeding into my soul? What am I feeding upon when I wake at night? What am I feeding upon with my time? What am I using my time to sow into my body, to sow into my soul? And as I said at the beginning, in the times past, maybe we could get away with it. But you know, in reality, we can't. I I look at my life and wonder, what else could I have done for God? How else could God possibly have used me if I had done this more before than now? If I had built into my soul the Word of God, if I had meditated on scriptures on whatever the subject is, because when that's been deposited in you under pressure, that's what's going to come out of you. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. We're going to kind of look at the end. Oh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 9. Let's go there quickly. I want to show you, we talked about Paul and what I just quoted of him. I want to show you what Paul did with this. And then we'll bring this to a close. 1 Corinthians 9. This is what has been to me one of the most troubling scriptures. Not because I don't know what it means, it's because I do know what it means and I don't like it. (laughs) You have any of those? This is not on my refrigerator. But it gnaws at me. This is where Paul earlier says, you know, to the weak I become weak that I may win some. I become all things, verse 22, to all men that I might by all means save some. This I do for the gospel's sake, not for my sake, for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. Look at verse 24. Therefore, do, do you not know that those who run in a race, and we've just finished the Winter Olympics, those who all run in a race, all run, but only one receives the prize, the gold medal. Run in such a, way that, such a way that you may obtain it, the prize. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or disciplined in all things. And they do it to obtain a piece of gold or silver or bronze medal, a crown. But we, an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run this way, not with uncertainty. So for what we're talking about is I eat, I feed my soul Not whatever's out there. Not with uncertainty. I don't just take whatever comes along. I don't just let whatever's out there coming into my ears, into my eyes. I'm not just talking about keeping pornography out. That should be a given. I'm talking about what I'm building into me to strengthen me in my my walk with God and in my strength as a father. So what what are you going to pass down as a father? Only what's in you. You can't pass on something that's not in you. Now this is the way, verse 26, I run, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. In other words, Paul says like a fighter. A fighter doesn't just throw punches. He throws, when he throws punches, his punch is named at an opponent, and there are different types of punches that have different purposes. There are body punches where they're designed. They'll never knock you out, but they're designed to weaken the, 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 the chest muscles and the ribs so that it's harder to breathe, so that opponent can't take the deep breath, so that he'll become tired. And as he becomes tired, his hands begin to come down, and now the part of him that can be knocked out is more vulnerable. So there's a strategy for every punch of that fighter. He's not just throwing punches because a boxer will tell you if you just throw punches and you don't hit anything, you get worn out. But when you connect and that punch has a purpose and it hits its goal, that strengthens you, it doesn't weaken you. And that same is true spiritually. 
So Paul says, everything I do is as a boxer, not just aimlessly doing things, but I'm purposeful in everything I do from the moment I get up in the morning to the last time I, when I close my eyes to go to bed. That doesn't mean you can't have fun, but it's got to be purposeful. Purposeful for your purpose, for your call. Look at this, and this is the verse that really gets to me, verse 27. But I discipline my body, and I bring it under subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified, fail the test. Paul says, I keep my body under. I'm temperate. I'm controlled. I'm in, that's one of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm self-controlled, and we're talking in terms of what I put in me. I'm discerning in terms of what I put in me. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 11. I'd love to bring to you a rah-rah, jump up and down. God's going to pour out you all kinds of blessings. But if we hear the word and we listen to the word and we are doers of the word, then when the test comes, we'll pass the test. Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God, the people who know their God shall be strong and shall carry out great exploits. Not the people who know about their God. Not the people who know who their God is. The people who know their God because they've walked with their God. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I said? Some of you have come to me and said, Lord, in your name I've cast out demons, I've done all kinds of miracles. And I say to you, depart from me. I never knew you, even though we did things in his name. Depart from you, ye he practice lawlessness. And he said, there's two men that build houses. One man built his house, built it on sand. Another man built his house, same house, same materials, same design, same contractor. He built his house on a rock. And notice a storm came against both houses. But Jesus said one house fell and the other house stood. And the difference was the foundation it was built on. And he said, if you hear my words and don't do them, you're the man that built a house, but you built it on sand and it will not stand. But if you hear my words and you do them, you'll be the man who built his house on rock. And no matter what comes against it, you and your household shall stand. And I suggest to you that because God has called us, you and me, men, to be fathers, to be influences on younger generations, on our families, on our neighbors, we are called for such a time as this. And when that day comes, if it does come, when we have to choose between bowing and burning because there will be people watching us, because there will be people imitating what we do, because your strength or your weakness is going to affect others, the choices we make now of what of the spiritual diet that we ingest is not only going to determine our destiny, it's going to determine the destiny of others And listen to this, it's also ultimately going to determine what our God is able to do for his kingdom in this age in which we're entering into. There is much at stake in the little choices we make every day of what am I going to feed on and what am I going to reject. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. We thank you that as a father, and Jesus told us to come to you as our father. We thank you that as a father, the very things that we've been learning, you also do with us. That you guide us, you guard us, 
as long as we let you govern us. And so we as men today thank you for the privilege that you would call us to live in this time and help us, Lord, to keep our, lift our eyes off of all the daily issues that we struggle so often with of whether we're just going to make it through the day or through the week and help us to realize that there is a destiny and a purpose for our lives to affect others, to infect others, and to lead others along this journey that you've called us to. Help us, O oh Lord, to see what you see, but to realize that we're not alone in this, that you have called us, will enable us, and you will equip us. Help us to be discerning, Lord, to the world that's around us spiritually, that it is not just a casual world out there full of entertainment and things, but it, that is all very purposeful, very purposefully designed and orchestrated by the God of this world who desires to lull the church into a place of sleepiness and laziness because he recognizes that we are the only threat that he has. Father, we ask you to awaken your church. Waken us as men to recognize not just our responsibility, but to also recognize the means that you've given us your word, that as we feed upon your word and meditate upon your word, that your word will be more than enough to strengthen us, to equip us, to stand tall for you. And we pray, Father, that as we do that, that the word of God working in us will cause us to stand strong so that if we're ever tested, as our Hebrew brothers were, that we will not bow under the threat of burning. And your commitment and promise to us is that whatever that test is, as we're faithful to you, your fourth man will show up in that furnace and will stand strong with us and that you will receive the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.